Please open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, as we continue and near the conclusion of our study through the Sermon on the Mount. Our text today is verses 21 through 23, and let me go ahead and read those as we begin today. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray together. Father, today give us ears to hear this warning from Scripture. Help us to understand the reality of what Jesus was talking about in these verses. And give us faith to respond in the way that we must. Responding in faith. Looking to Jesus as our Savior, the only Savior. And we pray these things now in His name. Amen. So we saw just a couple weeks ago from our study in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus warned that on, he used this illustration of two pathways, two gateways leading into eternity. One was the pathway to eternal life. And he, and he stated that that was a, a narrow way. Few would find that pathway. And in contrast to that, there was the pathway to eternal death, destruction, separation from from God for all eternity. And, And there would be many that would find that pathway. Many would travel down a life of the the pathway in their life leading to destruction. But now I believe Jesus makes what perhaps is an even more shocking statement. Maybe even the most shocking statement that Jesus ever made in his ministry. And that is this warning that we just read, that there would be some, there would be many, who would be shocked at the day of reckoning to find that they were not granted entrance into the kingdom. Who had gone throughout their lives, perhaps assuming that they were on that narrow road leading to everlasting life. And yet, would find out that they in fact had been on the broad path that led to everlasting death. So Jesus states for us this warning, a strong warning. And I've stated it this way for the title of this message. The danger of nominal Christianity. 
the danger of nominal Christianity. Now, before we go any further, let me define what I'm talking about. What is nominal Christianity? Well, simply put, this refers to someone that is a Christian in name only. That's what the term nominal means, in name only. A Christian in name only. That is, a nominal Christian is someone that claims to be a Christian, that would call themselves a Christian, that would identify themselves with Christ, but there would be little to no evidence that supports that claim. Little to no outward evidence displayed for others that would support their claim, that would support their identification with Jesus. For instance, there might be those, and there, there are many, especially in our country, that just by default would identify themselves as a Christian. They would perhaps say, well, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. I'm not Hindu. I'm not any other of these religions. I'm not atheist. Therefore, I'm Christian. We're a Christian country after all, right? I'm not any of these other religions, so I must be Christian. I think there's many that would identify themselves as a Christian in that, in that way. There are many others that identify them, would identify themselves as a Christian simply because they recognize that Jesus himself was a, a good teacher, promoted a good ethical standard for us to live by. We could look at, look no further than our study in the Sermon on the Mount to see there are lots of good things that we could pattern our lives after and we would be happy and successful from a human, from a human point of view if we followed what Jesus taught. So many would, would say, yes, I respect Jesus and, and his teaching. I, I do my best to follow his teaching. Therefore, I must be a Christian. And I think many probably identify themselves as Christian in, in that way. And then many others identify themselves as Christians. And this is probably where people in our circles, people we identify with, maybe even some of us would identify ourselves with, as Christians simply because of our close contact with Christ and His church. Maybe we, as many of us have been, are born into Christian families. Families where our parents and maybe even generations before were believers. Therefore, we, we have this, this experience with Christianity. And many identify themselves as Christians based upon that close contact with Christianity. And yet I say, as Jesus says, there is a danger of nominal Christianity. There is a danger of identifying ourselves as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, on the wrong basis. Basing our identity in Christ on the wrong thing. And being totally unprepared to hear the words of Jesus when he, when he judges all men, the living and the dead. There will be many that are surprised to find out that they were not in fact a child of God, not in fact a Christian. Jesus gave a parable later on in the book of, of Matthew. Let me read it for us. This parable illustrates the same thing that he, that he warns against here in, in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 25. 
Jesus says the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will be not not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, Jesus says, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus illustrates here in this parable the same thing he warns about in Matthew 7, that there will be those that are surprised when Jesus comes, that are surprised that they are not found in Christ, that when they cry out, Lord, Lord, Jesus simply says, I don't know you. You are not one of mine. What Jesus is saying here is he is coming to the close of this Sermon on the Mount. Is that there are many, many probably that are listening to him give this sermon. That are listening to his teaching. There are many who think that they are kingdom citizens. That's who we're talking about. That's who Jesus is talking to and about. Calling them to to live as kingdom citizens. There are many hearing what he has to say believing themselves to be followers of Christ. Maybe for no other reason than very literally they're following Christ. They're hearing His teaching. They're observing His ministry. There are many who think they are kingdom citizens, but at the day of reckoning will be cast out by Christ the judge with the indictment that He never knew them. They were never truly followers of His. The problem Jesus deals with here at its heart is a problem of self-deception. You see, it's so easy for us to be self-deceived. This is a pervasive problem, according to Jesus. This is a problem that will affect many. He said earlier that many will follow the broad path to destruction. And now he says there are many that are self-deceived into thinking they are children of God, followers of Christ, when in fact they are not. And so Jesus warns again that there are many who will be surprised at the day of judgment to find out that Jesus never knew them. Now I want to make sure that we understand at least one thing that, that that this warning does not mean, these verses do not mean. And that is this. There are not people who not only profess to follow Christ, but who believe in Christ, who are trusting in Christ as their Savior. They go throughout their life trusting Christ. And I'm talking genuinely trusting Christ as their Savior. And then get to the, get to the judgment, uh, judgment day and find out that 
they are not one of the elect, for instance. To find out that they had believed in Jesus, and yet God had not elected them. I've actually heard this brought up as an issue related to these verses. That somehow there would be a hundred people, let's say, a hundred people that are believers in Jesus. And when they get to the judgment seat, find out that, that God had only elected 80 of them. And that 20 of them, having believed in Jesus, were not elect. That is not what Jesus is warning against and, and, and saying in this verse. You see, all, that, all those whom God elects will be brought to salvation. The only way anybody is brought to salvation is through the sovereign election of, of, by God of that sinner, bringing him to salvation. So, right off the bat, I want us to understand that this, this, is, this should not scare us into thinking that somehow a lifelong of, of trust and faith in the work of Christ will be for naught when Jesus rejects us. He will not reject those whom he has brought, bought with his blood and then brought to salvation in Christ. This problem of nominal Christianity, this problem of, of people believing themselves to be a Christian when in fact they aren't, is a problem that no church or no group is immune to. It would be foolish for us to assume that in this room, even right now, that there are people, it would be foolish for us to assume that there is nobody here that is not in this situation that Jesus talks about. It would be foolish for us to think that there aren't people here that are just assuming their salvation, assuming their right standing before God. So how do we avoid, or, or how, what are... What are what, is, what are the types of nominal Christianity that Jesus talks about here? What, how, how does Jesus illustrate this self-deception that is so easy for us to fall into? There's really two of people that Jesus specifically refers to in these verses. The first one are those that possess a faith without works. And I'll even use air quotes. These are people that possess faith, a so-called faith, without works. That's what he talks about in verse 21. And he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, the people Jesus is talking about in verse 21 are people that know the correct name for Jesus. They know. They know that Jesus is is Lord. At least they know that that's what they should call him. They know enough about Jesus to call him Lord. And they even seem to be enthusiastic about it, or certainly urgent about it. Lord, Lord. These are people that know who Jesus is to some extent. They know that Jesus is in fact Lord. And yet when they call upon him, he says that not everyone who calls him Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you might be asking, 
Doesn't the Bible teach that all we need to do is call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Aren't there verses that that indicate that all we need to do is precisely what these people are doing? Call upon the name of the Lord? Well, certainly there are. Let me just read for us a couple of them. From Romans chapter 10. These are pretty well-known verses, probably verses we all know. Many of us at least. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't this exactly what these people in Matthew 7, 21 are doing? Calling on the name of the Lord? Well, first of all, I would argue two things. One, Jesus is talking about a day in the future, a day when all of us will stand before him. And these people are are calling out to him then, Lord, Lord. As opposed to those who, in our lifetime, as we understand and hear the gospel, the truth of, of who Jesus is and what he has done, in, in, in that period of time, call out to him to be saved. So there's a difference in the timing of these calls to the Lord. One is a call that answers the, the summons from from God, calling upon Jesus to save them. The other is almost, I get the picture of a call of desperation at the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, I think we'll even see that kind of ratcheted up a little bit in the next group of people. Lord, Lord. Yes, the wonderful thing about our salvation is that it is all of grace. It is all of, of God. It is all a work of of His grace in our lives. It is not dependent on anything that we do. But Jesus' response to these people in verse 21 indicates that there is, there is a profession of faith that does not save. There is a profession of faith that does not save. It's a faith without works. Jesus understands the corruption of our of the human heart in general, the corruption of our human hearts. And that, that it requires far more than theological accuracy. It, it, it requires more than a simple cognitive understanding of, of who God is and who Jesus is to fix the problem within our hearts. Jesus understood that. Remember the group of people to whom Jesus is speaking. I alluded to them earlier. I think it helps us to kind of get into the setting in which this this text was given. Think about the people that, that he is speaking to. Many of these people we know throughout the Gospels will follow him for several years. The crowds, in fact, in many cases would just get larger and larger as they saw what Jesus was doing when he provided food for the multitudes, when he healed the sick, when he raised the dead, when he taught, people followed. 
People wanted to, to be identified with Jesus, didn't they? And yet, what would happen? They would come to the end of his earthly ministry and they would cast praise upon Jesus as he enters Jerusalem. And then within a week of that, would be crying out that he be crucified. This was a people, this was a group of people that for a long period of time followed Jesus. A long period of time, several years, would probably identify themselves to some degree or another as a follower of Christ. As someone who paid attention to Jesus' ministry. As someone who was attuned to what Jesus was doing. And yet when it came right down to it, they wanted to see him crucified. Because he did not serve the need they expected him to serve. They did not follow Jesus in full obedience as he had had, had taught them. One of the challenges in understanding the kind of the the full orb nature of salvation is understanding this relationship of faith and works. We've talked about this before. I'm reminded of the passage in James. We studied through James a while back. And you remember the text in James where he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is that? Can that faith, that faith that that does not have works, save him? James says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James responds, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And here is maybe the the statement that reveals to us the significance of obedience to God as a demonstration of our faith. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, even the demons have a measure of faith. They have a measure of belief in God. They have some degree of understanding of who God is. So what sets apart those who are genuine followers of Christ? Those who are genuine Christians from the rest It's those that back up their profession of faith with works that attend that profession. Works that confirm the faith that they claim to have. Salvation is certainly not earned by our obedience. There is nothing, there's no no amount of works that we can do which can earn our salvation. We know that. But works are simply evidence of the faith that we have in Christ. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, the parallel passage with our text here in Matthew 7. This teaching from Matthew 7 in Luke 6 is summed up this way. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Jesus wanted wanted these people that heard him to understand that if you 
truly realize and truly recognize that Jesus is Lord, you will obey him. That's what it means to recognize that Jesus is Lord. One who does not obey Jesus does not recognize him as Lord. Because Jesus is Lord, he has complete authority over our lives. And when we recognize him as Lord, as Master, we live in humble obedience to his will. Therefore, we flip around Luke 6.46 and, and understand that when we call upon him as Lord, Lord, we do what he tells us. And that's Jesus' point to this group of people. He says it's not good enough to just come to me calling me Lord, Lord. The one who truly recognizes me as Lord is the one that does the will of my Father. It's not the doing the will of the Father that grants, that gets us the inheritance, that earns us that inheritance. It's the doing the will of my Father that demonstrates that we, in fact, believe that Jesus is Lord. You see, when Jesus called upon people to follow after him as his disciples, as his followers, when Jesus calls us to be his disciples, when Jesus calls on us to trust and follow him, He is calling on us to abandon every other pursuit that we have, every other allegiance that we have, and follow after Him. You see, there is a cost to following Jesus. When we truly recognize Jesus as Lord, we do so so in a way that is more than just verbally stating the fact. We do so with our lives. This was Paul's own testimony. The Apostle Paul. Let me read his own testimony as he relates to King Agrippa at the end of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts. God's commission, the Lord Jesus Christ's commission on Paul's life. This is what this is what God had sent him to do. He says, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. And this was Paul's message, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And we could go to verse after verse, passage passage after passage, which describe the same thing, that there are deeds that are in keeping with our repentance. It is absolutely foreign to the New Testament and foreign to the Gospel for there to be a repentance of sin that does not forsake sin, turn to God and obey God. Throughout the Bible, we are confronted with this reality. True conversion in the heart of a sinner 
produces a change in behavior. A disciple of Jesus cannot and does not continue to live in sin. A disciple of Jesus cannot and does not continue to live according to their own plans and and purposes and desires. You see, a disciple of Jesus has forsaken all that and is following solely after the Lord, submitting everything to Him. You see, when Jesus regenerates us by the power of His Spirit, He completely changes our nature. When Jesus saves a sinner, we respond, we as as the, the converted sinner respond with more than simply words from our mouth. We respond with lives of obedience. Therefore, having been regenerated, we are free to turn from our sin and to obey God. Therefore, everyone that Jesus saves will do the will of his Father in heaven. So I go back to that potential opposing view of these verses. We understand that all those whom God saves will do the will of his Father in heaven. Therefore, all those that God saves will be granted the inheritance that is due them. So the first type of nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, is a a Christianity that possesses a faith without works. That's no Christianity at all. Because as we've seen, true Christianity is a profession of faith followed by a demonstration of works that prove that faith, that prove the, the the, the, the reality of that faith. Secondly, nominal Christians perform works without faith. And this is that second group of people that Jesus is referring to here in verse 22. It says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus turns from those that have, that have a profession of faith without the works to the other group of people that have all kinds of works and yet no faith. Jesus never knew them. Jesus deals with this elsewhere in his ministry with his own disciples. Luke chapter 10 records the sending out of the 72. You remember that he sent them out to preach the gospel and they returned. The gospel says that they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in our name, in your name rather. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't rejoice in all of these wonderful things that you have seen happen and and done. Do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Talk about throwing cold water on all their ministry accomplishments. There's this group coming back, excited about what what they had seen happen. And yet Jesus says, don't get excited about those things. Don't be amazed at those things, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Because there is a group of people. Jesus tells us there's a, a large group of people, many, who will do all kinds of wonderful things. We'll do all kinds of good works, even in Jesus' name. And yet we'll find out that at the end of the day, Jesus never knew them. Their works were done in vain. Their works were done apart from faith in Jesus Christ. What Jesus has done to make us his children is far more significant for us than anything that we can do for him. What Jesus has done to make us his children. The work that Jesus has done for us is far more significant than any of the works that we can do in his name and for his glory. It is not loud professions and expressions about our allegiance to Christ that make the difference for us. But it's our humble faith in his work whereby we obtain salvation. We can fall. We can, it, it, I think it's very easy for us to fall into the trap of, of being enamored by not only the works of others as evidence of salvation and, and, and seeing only the works. But I think we can do that even in our own lives. One of these traps that we can fall into is the behavior that's been dubbed apple nailing. Those familiar with Paul Tripp and his ministry, this is a term I believe he's probably coined, I don't know, apple nailing. The image is of a tree, even a dead tree, a rotten tree that produces no fruit. And it'd be like us going to that dead tree and taking apples and nailing them to that tree and then looking at the tree and saying, here is a healthy tree with bearing, bearing fruit. Well, of course, that's foolish. Because after a while, what's going to happen? Those apples are going to die and the tree is going to be left with no fruit. The problem is not, the problem is from within the tree. The tree is not able to bear fruit on its own. It's dead. It's rotten. It does no good. It's, it's silly and foolish for us to just nail fruit and claim that the tree is healthy because we've nailed fruit that has come from elsewhere and nailed it onto there. This is fixing the outward problem or the outward appearance without fixing the problem. You see, it's it's possible. I think very easy, dangerously easy for for us. I'm talking about us that are absorbed in church ministry and just consumed with serving God and serving the ministry of the church. To be so busy doing good things, serving God, serving others within the church, that we fail to recognize our own true condition before God. I think it could perhaps be easy for us to be lulled into a false confidence in our standing before God just because we are busy serving Him. 
It would be foolish for any of us to think that just because we preach or teach in this church or other churches, that we are right before God. It'd be foolish for us to think that just because we serve on the worship team or we work in the children's ministry or we lead a small group or we serve in the nursery or we do any other ministries within the church that we have a right standing before God. You see, our standing before God is not based upon the things that we do for Him. It's based on the condition of our heart before Him. And so if we find our confidence in God in the things that we do for Him, if we find our security before God in all of the ministries that we're involved in, we're no different from those that come to Jesus at the the last day saying, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? Surely we were one of yours. And yet Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. The most important thing is not what we are doing for God. The most important thing is what he has done for us. Lloyd-Jones made this statement. We must never be more interested in we must never be more interested in what we may call the byproducts of the faith than in the faith itself. We must never be more interested in the byproducts of the faith than we are the faith itself. In other words, we we should not be more interested in the ministry of the church and all the things going on in relation to the church. The meeting people and getting to know people and serving people and all the things that we could do in the ministry of this church. We should never be more interested in all of those things than we are interested in our Savior himself. The moment we recognize or see in ourselves that we are more interested just in the, the culture of the church than we are interested and in, in, in love with our Savior, there should, be, there should be a reevaluation. I'm not saying that that means you're not a believer, you're not a Christian. What I'm saying is certainly there needs to be a reevaluation in your your hunger and thirst for Jesus. What's striking about Jesus' response to this group of people is not only that they are rejected, even after doing all these amazing things, but that in doing so he calls them workers of lawlessness. I mean, how is it that people that prophesy and cast out demons in Jesus' name are workers of lawlessness? Well, it comes down to the, the way that we understand anything apart from Jesus. Anything done apart from Jesus and apart from faith in, in Him 
is his unrighteousness. We know this to be true in the prophecy from the Old Testament where even our righteousness before God is as filthy rags. Even, even the good things that we can do in and of ourselves are, are not, not impressive to God. They're not, they don't in any way merit favor with Him. Therefore, if someone is outside of Christ, if someone does not possess true and saving faith in Jesus Christ, any work that could be, that could be done even to be claimed in Jesus' name, is as, as though it's law-breaking before God, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. God is no more impressed with our so-called works of righteousness apart from faith than He is with lawless works of those still lost in their sins. So there's two types of nominal Christians. Those that possess a faith without works and those that possess works without faith. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for how we think about professions of faith? What does this mean for our own evaluation of ourselves, our own hearts? Well, first of all, I think that we we would be well served to consistently really follow the exhortation given by Paul in 2 Corinthians 13:5 when he exhorted them to examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You see there is a danger of falsely assuming that we are Christians. And it, as we have seen there's a variety of of reasons why we might assume this. But there is a danger of falsely assuming that we are Christians when we are not. And it's a danger I think we need to take seriously. Now this is not a call to undue introspection which causes us just to all, always be looking inward at ourselves and, and, and finding our own sins wherever they manifest themselves. Which only leads or could potentially lead to discouragement and frustration. What it is a call to is continuing to not look within ourselves, but to look at our Savior, to see Him, to continue to be trusting Him. And then where we do find sin, to be repenting of it, confessing it, and continuing to look to Jesus for forgiveness. So this... This is not a message and not a warning given so that all of us will doubt whether or not we are truly a Christian. But I think it would serve us well to be aware of the danger that exists for those to to go through their whole lives thinking that they are a Christian and finding out that they never truly demonstrated saving faith in Jesus Christ. So we should examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Secondly, we need to be careful in relation to how we seek to evangelize others. 
How is it that we call others to faith in Christ? And maybe one specific way that this certainly is significant for many of us in this church is how, how is it we evangelize our children? I mean, almost everyone in this room in, in some way has influence over the life of, of a child. And I'm thinking even young children. How is it we present the gospel to them? There is a danger in softening the demands that Jesus makes for repentance and faith in Jesus. There's a danger to soften those demands when it comes to evangelizing our children in an attempt to make the gospel in some way more understandable and more acceptable to them. Well, Jesus himself taught that it just takes the faith of a little child to be saved. It just takes childlike faith to believe in him, to trust in him. And so I think that if Jesus said that, therefore all of the demands that Jesus made for those who would follow him as their savior are demands that a child can understand. Therefore, we need to resist any temptation there might be to, to soften those demands. You see, if a child cannot understand what it means to repent of sin and turn from it, I'd be hard-pressed to understand how it is that they can truly demonstrate faith in Jesus Christ. Not that they're going to have a full biblical and theological understanding of all that goes into that. Of course not. And of course, they're not going to have the lifelong record of sin to repent of that, that some have who come to Christ later in life. But a child that comes to Christ as a child ought to have some understanding of what it means to repent of sin. Ought to have an understanding of what it means to trust in Christ as the only way of salvation. And then we need to be careful that we aren't drawing our focus and our, our, our gaze away from Christ onto a profession. One of, the, one of the things that this group, specifically in verse 22 that Jesus talks about, what is it they point to as the, 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 the merit that they have to enter the kingdom? It's the things that they had done. They're pointing, they're pointing at something other than, than Jesus as the reason that they should inherit the kingdom. And so we must be careful, not only as we deal with children, but as we even consider our own salvation. We need to be careful that we aren't simply looking back at some past experience and placing more faith in that experience than in the person that should be the source of our faith or the object of our faith. As, he said, as I said earlier, we must make sure that we are finding our assurance, our security, not in something that we have done or are doing, but in something Christ has done, the thing that He has done for us. He is the one that has done the work that has saved us. So one way we might 
that might help to evaluate our, ourselves is to ask ourselves this question. How do I know that I am saved? How do I know that I am a Christian? And if we answer with something that we have done or something that we are doing rather than something that Jesus has done for us, then it would be worth reevaluating our understanding of what the gospel is and what it means to trust Christ, what it means to be a Christian. It's not about what we have done. It's all about what Christ has done. You see, it's far worse to have a false assurance of no salvation than to have no assurance of salvation. It's far worse to have false assurance of no salvation, to be falsely assured that you're saved when you're not, than it is to have to not have assurance of salvation. There are some Christians who think the worst thing is to always be doubting their salvation. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm not saying doubting your salvation is, is a good thing. If it's a lifelong struggle, I'm not saying that's a good thing. But it would be far, that's far better than to have a lifelong false assurance of something that doesn't exist in your life. You see, anytime we lack assurance, we're probably looking more at our, ourselves, our own hearts, our own behavior, than we are at Jesus and who He is and what He's done. Therefore, to have no assurance of salvation, and hopefully these are intermittent and short periods of time that we, we struggle with this, but these are times that will lead us to continue in the pursuit of Christ. And we can serve each other by pointing each other more and more to Christ for confidence, not to ourselves, not to outward behavior that we have, but pointing us to Christ, which will lead us to confidence in our salvation, that at the end of the day, we might inherit that which God has promised to those who are His children. We will inherit the kingdom of heaven. We will, enter, we will inherit the gift of entering into the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, rather than finding ourselves in the situation of these professing Christians that find out that all the things that they had done were of no value before the righteous Lord at the end of the day. And, and may God continue to lead us to see more of Him, to, to lead us to bow before Him as our Lord, to serve Him in humble obedience as our Master. And that as we do that, He would graciously provide for us confidence and assurance in Him that we are His children. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, thank you for its warning to us. Lord, may we never be complacent about our relationship to you. May we always be evaluating our standing before you, but let it be that we would have our eyes and our gaze directed upon our Savior and not upon ourselves. That we would find our confidence in the work that he has done in our behalf. I pray that you would, for any here today that 
have a false assurance of salvation, that need to be shaken from their comfort zone, that need to, to realize their true condition, I pray that you would, that you would shake them from that false assurance. That they would see that all the things they are trusting in for salvation are, are not sufficient to save. And that you would see them, that you would lead them to see Jesus is the only sufficient object of salvation. For those who might be here today that do not have assurance of their salvation, that profess faith in Christ but, but doubt, I pray that your spirit would minister the reality of their faith to them. That they would look outside of themselves, outside of their own experience, outside of their own awareness of their sin. To see their Savior who made an end of their sin, who is greater than their sin. Lord, I pray for our children. I pray that you would give us as parents and teachers and grandparents and the, the wisdom and ability to teach them the gospel, but teach them the full gospel. And that you would give them eyes to see and hearts to believe. Grant them faith and repentance. And may we continue to be pointing their attention to Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.